sound. Father, we pray tonight, and my mic's just a little hot, we can bring it down one notch, but we thank you, Lord, tonight for what you're wanting to do, Lord, that you'd prepare hearts and minds and lives even now, your precious Holy Spirit, just brood over and fill every area of every life, all those that are going to be hearing this, that are here live, but those that, through the internet, through live stream, those that are driving down the road, however people are listening to this in their home, wherever they're at, but we ask you that your precious Holy Spirit will reach out and captivate us to give um, all of us your best ear and our best ear to you, rather in our focus, Lord, to help us to be in tune with you in our minds, that, that we're not distracted, we're not thinking about other things, that our eyes and ears are eyes and ears of the Spirit to be anointed and in tune with you. And Lord, we'd have good fertile soil of hearts and minds and lives, and that the the word of the Lord be as living seeds of truth sown out in a good fertile soil of hearts and minds and lives, watered by the Spirit of God. Take root, grow, and produce a hundredfold harvest of eternal fruit that remains until Jesus comes. And Lord, that this truth of your word will go out and be like a light shining in darkness in every life and dispel any darkness, any lies, any deception, the strongholds of the enemy to clear that out and bring truth. And that your word, Lord, there'll be a washing of the water of the word. There'll be a hammer of your word that'll break down strongholds. There'll be a sword of your word that cuts away what needs to go and penetrates. And help us, Lord, anoint our eyes and ears. Give us eyes and ears of the Spirit as we get locked into what you're showing us. We bless you, Lord. We commit this time to you. Let everything be accomplished through the preaching of the word. And as it's recorded and goes out, that your will to be accomplished, that the winds of your Spirit will carry it out among the nations. Lord, that your angels will watch over it. And Lord, we agree together corporately, we bind the enemy that would try to hinder in any way, that would try to distract, that would try to steal. We bind it in the name of Jesus right now. We break his power. Lord, let this go forth. For you promised us your word will go forth and accomplish that which you sent it forth to do. It will not return void. So we thank you, Lord. We stand on your word and we bless you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, I'm going to deal with covenant tonight. I'm starting a series on this. I don't believe this sermon will be very long, and I'm going to deal with several different topics about covenant, but we live in a society, as I'm starting out here, that really doesn't understand covenant at all. By and large, we live in a culture in America where people don't really keep their word a lot of times and don't fulfill their vows. And unfortunately, you can't really depend on a lot of people because they don't understand how important that is. I remember hearing from uh, hearing some sermons about David Hogan. That was he's a missionary out in the jungles of Mexico. He ministers predominantly to the Indians that live out there, um, I, the descendants of like the Aztec and Incan and Mayan Indians. And as he's out there among them, he said that his word is so important. You know, there was a time in our our society here in America that my grandparents could tell you that there was a time when if you gave somebody your word and shook hands on it, even a business deal, that that was enough. And people understood that your word was your bond and that you would fulfill your word and and it was expected. But now, um, people are so flippant about these things that there has to be contracts that are drawn up you know, and there has to be legal implications, so people just simply keep their word. And I remember hearing David Hogan talking about how the people there depended on him, and it was so important if he told them he would be somewhere, he'd be there a certain day, he would do something, 
how important his word was to them. And he represented Christ to them. And if he was to break his word, how much that would affect things. And, and he was talking about here in America how um, things like faithfulness and loyalty and being a dependable person. All He was saying how that's rare. And he said that the, the people there that he ministers to over the years, he's cultivated a relationship with them. And, and they know, and I, I don't think he was exaggerating or trying to be funny. He said if, if he told them, I'll be there this day, this time, if he wasn't there, they really honestly would think that either he was dead or something really serious happened to him because he was so committed to keeping his word. And isn't that the way that God is? God is faithful to watch over his word to perform it. And God will keep his end of the deal when it comes to his word. And what God is looking for in all of us, I believe, is that there would be a faithfulness. When God looks at us, does he see a people that he can depend on? That he knows that they're people of their word. They say, I'm going to do this, I'm not going to do this. That their yes is yes, their no is no. They're going to keep their vows. They're going to be faithful and loyal. And so hopefully this word will really hit home tonight. But that's on kind of the negative side. I don't really want to dwell there too long. I just want to put that out there. And a lot of times God will look down and see. And he'll test people. And see if they can be dependable. If, if there's somebody that will keep their word. That will be a person of their word. Somebody that's dependable. Somebody, even when it's difficult, will be faithful to be where they're supposed to be, when they're supposed to be there. And they're really loyal and they're faithful. And he looks for that when it's time to really promote somebody and use them. And he'll test them and see if they will be somebody like that. All right. And over the years, let me say this one more thing. Over the years, I've seen where people in the church world, even though they may be 40, 50, 60 years old, that they're like... um, 40, 50, 60 year old teenagers. They're irresponsible, they're immature, and they're undependable. And God can't really use them in an awesome way at all. And it's sad, they need to grow up. All right, so let me move on here. You will never truly be able to walk in faith until you understand how God is so faithful to his covenant toward you and me. Let me say that again, because that would be a good place to say amen. You will never truly walk in faith until you understand how faithful God is to his covenant toward you. Because even though people are unfaithful, and God has to sift through to see who he's going to use in a mighty way, who he's going to use in an awesome way, God has to sift through. There's people that are they're adult children, you know. <laughs> There's people that are unfaithful and disloyal and they're undependable. And God can't use them. And God's got to pass those people by. But regardless of that, when it comes to the covenant that God made with Christ on the cross and God has made with us through the cross, God is so faithful to his covenant. And so I want to show you that God being so faithful to his covenant... And it has to do with certain things I'm going to deal with tonight that I believe will really bless you. Understanding covenant with David and Jonathan. This is a good example. 
I've heard this type of thing preached a lot through the years and a lot of different examples. Do you remember the story when Abraham, God told Abraham to cut the animals and, and there was, he cut them in, in half and put their pieces on each side and he walked through that and God appeared to him and God gave him the covenant of circumcision and all of that. But that was cutting a covenant. And you don't read in the Bible times about making a covenant. You read about cutting a covenant because it had to do with blood. And it was a very serious thing. So understanding the covenant, you can look at David and Jonathan to get a picture here. Number one, when you enter a covenant, you have to count the cost of the covenant before you enter it to make sure that you're willing. Jesus counted the cost when he went to the cross. Number two, there was a covenant exchange between David and Jonathan. The Bible says they exchanged robes, they exchanged their weapons, and they exchanged belts. So here they were, David and Jonathan were coming into a covenant. They both understood how serious covenant was. They understood that once you made a covenant, and you gave your word, that there was no way of getting back out of that. You had to count the cost going in because it was serious. And they exchanged robes, which has to do with identity. And it was interesting because in this story, this narrative normally would have played out where Saul's son, Jonathan, would have become king upon his death. And so really this was probably prophetic here because David, being a shepherd boy, his, his robe would have not been anything to speak of other than just a dirty garment you know, that he wore out in the fields all the time. But Jonathan would have had a princely robe. Being the prince, being the one who is in line for the throne, but we know that David was called by God to fill that role. And so they exchanged robes, and now David had a, pr- a princely robe that he never had before based on this covenant. They exchanged weapons. And the message that Jonathan and David were saying to each other when they exchanged their weapons was, from this day forward, your enemies will be my enemies. And that was one of the promises that God gave. I hope everybody really gives me their best here tonight because this sermon could really help people. This is one of the things that God promised the children of Israel whenever he gave them Passover. He said, if you'll keep Passover and you'll come under the blood of that lamb, he said, I will be an enemy to your enemies. And they exchanged belts, speaking of strength. And when you're in a true covenant with somebody, that person will become a great strength to you. So we see that Jesus counted the cost and then the covenant exchange that Jesus exchanged his place in heaven to come down here and be wrapped in humanity. Number three, cutting covenant. There had to be blood that was shed in a covenant. At times, there would even be maybe a mark on the body. And we know that Jesus, when he came, his blood was shed. And we know that his body will eternally bear the marks of what he did on Calvary as a sign of his covenant. You have to understand that the first covenant that took place at the cross had to do between God the Father and God the Son. You have to understand that. That's the first aspect of this covenant. 
that the son came to represent humanity and to represent how Adam fell. He was the last Adam. And this was a covenant between the father and the son. But also this covenant extends between God and us. And then number four, there was many times connected to making a covenant. There would be blood that shed. It was a serious thing. And then there would also be a covenant meal that was eaten by the participants of the covenant. And as they ate together, they were solidifying this covenant. And so Jesus also gave us a covenant meal in the Lord's Supper. You see, even back in the days of Abraham and Melchizedek, you see that there was bread and wine. There was something in the way of a covenant. And then Melchizedek blessed Abram. All right, so I'm just trying to show you that in this culture, many times we read the Bible and people don't understand the, the Hebrew culture and the Middle Eastern mindset that was in it. Because here in America, this people have grown up not understanding covenant. And so therefore, this seems really foreign. But this was a very serious thing that you did not enter into lightly. And if you were to make a covenant with somebody, it was meant to be for a lifetime and it was dead serious. And so Jesus counted the cost. He was willing to come. And somebody had to create a blood covenant between God and humanity. And God knows that, that us as Christians and, and before Christ came, the children of Israel, He knows that we're human and He knows that we have a sinful nature and He knows that we're not going to be perfect. But God is still so faithful to His covenant that if people will come and say, Lord, forgive me, He says He'll be faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us. You know, it's interesting because in Proverbs it says, though a righteous man falls seven times, God will pick him up. And so God is faithful. He's faithful to his covenant. Now we know that there's going to be, because the Bible says there's going to be some people that will abandon the covenant. And maybe they started with Christ and they're going to walk away from Christ and deny him. That's their choice. But if we will simply stay with the Lord, even in our weakness, even in our imperfections, even through the struggles, God's going to be faithful to this covenant and see you through it. Amen? So there's seven places I dealt with that Jesus shed his blood. I'm going to move through this quickly, and I want to get to the covenant meal. All right, Acts 10.38, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. And now he went around doing good healing all under the power of the devil because God was with him. Again, Jesus said, peace be unto you as the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. Now, I'm painting a picture here. Jesus came in the power of the Holy Spirit, healing all oppressed of the devil. And then Jesus said, as the Father sent me, I'm sending you. And John 14, 12 says, Verily, I, truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works that I've been doing. And they will even do greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. All right, is everybody seeing this picture here? Jesus came in the power of the Holy Spirit to destroy the devil's kingdom, to, to bring healing to those that were sick and deliverance to the captives. And he said, I'm sending you in the way I was sent. And he's saying, if you'll believe in me, you'll even do greater works than I've done because I go to the Father. 
And one of the things that was dealt with back in the revival of the 40s and the 50s, whenever great healing revivals broke out, it started really with William Branham, but you know, people like Oral Roberts and Jack Coe and many others. It ended really with A.A. Allen, in my opinion, in the 60s, leading in, dovetailing into the charismatic movement. But anyway, during this time, you have to understand that people had a mindset. And their mindset was that, you know, a lot of people, not necessarily everybody, but it was pretty, pretty pervasive in Christianity, that to live in poverty and to live sick and to live that way, oppressed, that somehow this was like pious, and this was like being godly. If you go back and listen to the sermons of this time, Oral Roberts and others, they really had to come against that mindset. And they were trying to tell people. And listen, let me tell you, this is the important thing. Jesus said to pray that God's kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So everybody think about this for a minute. Because I believe God's going to help break through any strongholds in people. And really help people to come into a new way of thinking. But do you see, when you look at heaven, Jesus said, pray that his kingdom come as will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we see that his kingdom is in heaven, his rulership, and his will is in heaven. Do you see poverty in heaven? Do you see sickness in heaven? If God liked sickness and it was of him and he was for it, then it would be all over heaven. Do you see people oppressed of the devil in heaven? All right. So Jesus is saying here that we need to be praying that God's rulership, his kingdom, will come on the earth. And his will, which we see in heaven what his will is, that that will come on the earth as it is in heaven. And Jesus understood that there was going to be spiritual warfare against the kingdom of God and the will of God in the earth. And here we are living behind enemy lines. It's a war. But he was saying, if you will pray that heaven invade earth, the kingdom of God come, his will is done on earth as it is in heaven. And when Jesus came, Jesus came displaying the kingdom of God. That's why Jesus would say, if you ever wondered, why did Jesus say the kingdom of heaven has come upon you? The reason why is because he's saying this. You knew poverty. You knew oppression of the devil you knew sickness you knew satan's oppression but you know what the kingdom of god has come upon you today and he was saying to us that god's kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven and the bible said everywhere jesus went he was anointed with the holy spirit and power destroying the works of the devil healing all oppressed of the devil so he was causing the kingdom of god and the will of god to come on earth as it is in heaven God is a good God. When he created the Garden of Eden, he did not create poverty. He did not create sickness. He did not create oppression. He created it good. It was the sin of humanity that allowed this stuff in. And it was Adam giving his authority to the devil who's abused that authority to this day. So when Jesus came, I'm just going to read this because I've already preached on it, but the seven places Jesus shed his blood. Now I want you to think about this because cutting covenant. God was cutting covenant with humanity. He saw that Adam had given over his authority to Satan. And he saw that sin was causing the world to, to come under a curse. And God so loved the world that he gave his son to come so that covenant could be cut that blood could be shed 
so that the kingdom of God and the will of God could come from heaven down to earth. Salvation could come. Healing could come. Deliverance could come. And the most important thing of all is that sin could be forgiven and we could come in covenant with God and go to heaven when we die. If that's the only thing Jesus did, it would be more than enough. But it's not the only thing he did. In the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus sweated blood. His face sweated blood. His, the beard was ripped out of his face. He bled. I'm sure they punched him many times in the face. He bled on his face. And what God was saying was that the, that the power of rebellion would be broken. You know, when Adam was in a perfect garden, Adam and Eve, they basically said, God, not your will, but my will be done. But Jesus was in the garden of Gethsemane and basically said, Father, not my will, but your will be done. And Jesus shed blood there on his face. He was sweating blood and he broke the power of rebellion by his blood. But also the blood shed on his face was so that the glory of God could come back. You know, the greatest, uh, probably the saddest thing for God and the saddest thing also for humanity, though people don't realize it, is that people have been separated by sin from the presence of God. Let me say that again. The saddest thing from God's perspective, but also the saddest thing for humanity, is that we've been separated from his presence because of sin. And when Jesus came, he was removing, because Adam and Eve, though they were nude physically, they had the glory on them. And I've already preached on that where everybody is familiar with this. So I don't have to recap. But when they sin, the Bible says, all sin and fall short of the glory. Though they were always naked, they always had that glory. But when they sin, that glory lifted. And they felt afraid. You know, a lot of people are afraid out there. And there's a lack of peace. But when they get into the presence of the Lord, there's something about his presence that brings a peace and a comfort that nothing else ever will. It doesn't matter. Um, any relationship you have can never come close to touching the presence of God in your life. The deep work that God does in his presence to love on people. And so Jesus was saying, you know, that here I am. And, and he died on the cross naked. That's the way Roman crucifixion was. It was humiliating and shameful. That he would be willing, being God in the flesh, to go through that. But he was doing that so that the glory of God will come back and wrap us up again. God wants to comfort us with his presence. Also the crown of thorns. God told Adam by the sweat of your brow you'll eat. There's poverty right there. Through, through labor, through toil, it's going to be hard. But Jesus took that crown of thorns and blood was shed on the sweat of his brow. On his brow, blood was shed so that the power of poverty could be broken. And now the Bible says that whatsoever things you need, that you pray about it, and God will supply all of our needs according to his riches and glory. He'll meet the need. And we don't have to struggle in poverty and be oppressed with poverty and barely get along and all that. God doesn't want that for his people. Look, the Bible says that even cares about feeding the sparrows and god's going to take care of his people so the power of poverty is broken or his back for healing that jesus took a cat of nine tails which many people know but it, it was had leather straps and it had things tied into the straps like rocks or or metal pieces or whatever and whenever they went across jesus's back it wasn't like somebody being hit with a belt or even a switch. It wasn't like that. I mean this thing would literally rip open somebody's back. And so they plowed Jesus' back open. 
and he paid for healing. The next thing was the two places in his hands so that we could do what Jesus did. What did Jesus say? As I was sent by the Father, I'm sending you. Mark 16, those that believe in my name, you'll speak in new tongues, you'll cast out devils, and you'll lay hands on the sick and they'll recover. There's power that can be in our hands. And then also our feet. Jesus took nails in the feet so that we could have authority in our walk. And when you go places, everywhere the soles of your feet tread, God will give you dominion and victory, not because of who you are, but because of what he did on Calvary. It's a cut covenant. When Jesus died on the cross, his blood was shed. He defeated Satan. And he raised from the dead in victory. The Bible says he spoiled principalities and powers, triumphing over them at the cross. And the Bible says in Luke ten nineteen. And it says that we, as Christians, can trample upon snakes and scorpions, overcome all the power of the enemy. Everybody say, all the power. And nothing will harm us. And the Bible goes on to say in many places about how Jesus paid for great victory. We share in that victory. Greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. So we have a position of being raised with Christ and seated at the right hand with him. It's a position of authority over the devil. But this came through a covenant that was cut at Calvary where blood was shed. And so the last part of cutting covenant is that there would be a covenant meal. And Jesus gave us the communion table. So I'm going to show you something here. Now, the communion table, as we know, comes out of Passover. So everybody really lay hold of this tonight. If you could turn that up a little bit, please. It's a little cold. When the children of Israel came out of Egypt, they celebrated Passover. And the Lord told them that as you take that Passover lamb and you sacrifice that and you put the blood on the doorpost, this was the first... um, Okay, there were ten plagues. This was the first plague that endangered both the Egyptians and the Israelites. Anybody ever think about that? This was the only plague that could endanger both Egypt and Israel was the plague of the death of the firstborn. God made no distinction here. All the other plagues he seemed to, but he made no distinction between Egypt and Israel. He simply told Israel, you better get that blood on your doorpost. Because whether you're Israeli or not here, the, the death angel's coming if you don't got that blood, okay? So the covenant there is being shown that it's a covenant of blood and those that come under the blood. But it's interesting because the children of Israel now took this Passover lamb and they shed its blood. It had to be perfect. It was a picture and type of Christ. They put the blood on the doorpost of the home. But we know that them living in abstract poverty and being slaves to the Egyptians, beaten and being worked so hard in that hot sun every day, you know, as well as I do, that there was a lot of sickness among those people. There had to be. But it's interesting because as they celebrated Passover, the Bible says when they came out, I want you to read this with me, Psalm 105, 37. He brought them forth with silver and gold, and there was not one feeble person among their tribes. You know what God's saying there? He healed them. 
at the Passover table. Even though you know that they were sick and they, they were oppressed, they were overworked, but yet at that Passover table, something happened to where there was none of them that were sick or feeble. When they came out, they came out healthy. And not only that, but they plundered Egypt. They, the, the wealth of the wicked was laid up for the righteous. I'm trying to show people something here. Because what Jesus paid for at Calvary broke poverty. It broke sickness. He gave us a covenant meal. What Israel had here in the natural, we have the fullness now. They only had an actual lamb and the blood of an animal. We have the lamb of God. So parallel this now and put it in context in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three, Paul said to the Corinthian church, these were Gentiles, and from what we understand, Corinth was a wicked place. And because of their background, the Corinthian church still had a lot of sin and, and a lot of imperfections. And Paul had um, his job cut out for him with the Corinthians, okay? But he was trying to show them something here. He said, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. When he gave thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup. Now, you guys are real familiar with the Passover Seder meal. And this is what Jesus was participating in. Are you seeing the connection? The children of Israel, there were none sick or feeble among them. They came out healthy. They came out prosperous. They came out victorious. Okay, Jesus is now taking this, and he says also in the same way he took the cup, this was the third cup, the cup of redemption. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we see that you can take this any time. It's not limited to church, and it's not limited to just once a week or once a year that you can take communion whenever you feel like you need to. Therefore, though, he says, whoever um, eats this bread or drinks, drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he's to eat the bread and drink the cup. Whoever eats or drinks, eats and drinks judgment if he does not discern the Lord's body. Now, this is interesting. This is probably a lot of people misunderstand where the Lord's coming from here. I've seen people afraid to take communion based on that scripture. That's not at all really the way that God wants it to be. How many of you know here that none of us are perfect and we're not going to be until we see Jesus? That's just the way it is. Okay, so the communion table is for imperfect people. Really, if you read this in context, you understand what was going on. Yes, I believe we need to examine ourselves and make sure that we, you know, aren't living in unrepentant sin. I mean, if somebody was having an active adulterous affair and they, did ha they didn't have any um, uh, notion of repentance whatsoever, they come in here and take communion, they go right out and continue in that. Yeah, they're going to bring judgment on ourselves. That would be stupid. Everybody say, that would be stupid. Right. So we're not doing that, right? Amen? So this isn't something that, that is bringing judgment. I'll tell you what was going on. The Corinthians were coming together and they were, they were having a, a feast because a lot of times the church services, had a, they would bring food and they would eat together. And during this time, they would be taking the Lord's Supper on the Sabbath. They would meet together and in this, they would be taking communion together. And there were people that were coming in there that were hungry and they were eating up all the bread and drinking up all the wine. 
And there were people there that came that couldn't even participate in the communion service because there wasn't any more bread. And so Paul was angry and told him, look, why don't you eat before you come? Here you are being a glutton and somebody else can't even participate in the communion because of what you're doing. Then he was rebuking them and saying when you come together, there needs to be some order about this. And that's really more in context of what he's saying. And I'll tell you something else. If you just come and you're hungry and the communion's passed out and somebody's just simply eating the bread and, and drinking the fruit of the vine and they're just doing it because they're hungry, they're not really going to receive the benefits of the communion table. But if you understand what you're doing and you rightly discern the Lord's body and you take it as communion, you're going to receive the benefits. Does this make sense? All right. So Paul said this. This is interesting. I want you to remember where this started with the children of Israel back in Egypt. Not rightly discerning the Lord's body. They didn't rightly understand the Lord's body. And listen to what he says. For this reason, many are weak and sick and a number fall asleep. But if we judge ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we're disciplined by the Lord. And so he's saying because people are not rightly discerning the Lord's body, they're not really understanding the power of what they're doing, what the communion table is, and really reaping the benefits of it. He's saying that there are many that are weak and sick and they don't have to be. Go back to Passover. When the children of Israel came out of Egypt, there was none sick or feeble. There was health and healing you have to read these things in context to understand them all right and then he goes on to say so then my brethren when you come together to eat wait for one another here's where he's talking about this if anyone is hungry let him eat at home so that when you come together it won't be a time of judgment right the remaining matters i will arrange when i come so he was having to deal with this but listen you imagine a bunch of baby Christians, they don't know. They come in and they get off work and they're over there and they're like, oh, hey, bread, you know. And they're just eating it and they're not getting the benefit. And then they're, they're over here, if we can say it this way, they're just pigging out and feasting. And other people are not even able to take the Lord's Supper. So once people really understand what God did for Israel when he gave them the Passover, how powerful this was. It was a source of health and healing. It was a source of prosperity in their life. They, they, they were coming under that blood. And if you, you should study the benefits of, the, of Passover, there were blessings that were connected to Passover that had to do with God being an enemy to your enemies. He said, I would send my terror before you, talking about angels going in front of you. There's just a lot of promises connected to it. Now, we have the fullness of that in Christ today. It's not only just at Passover time, but it's throughout the year through the communion table. When Jesus cut covenants and he shed his blood and he brought that covenant, he gave a covenant meal and based on that covenant, what he paid for, we're remembering that at the covenant meal. Is this making sense? I know this is a little bit deep, but I believe that God's wanting to do something deep and new in River of Life if we start really rightly discerning the body of the Lord and really understanding what the communion table is. It's so powerful. There's been so many people that have been healed and delivered of things at the communion table. It's a powerful thing. And why? Because it's a covenant meal that is connected to what he did. I've heard it said, and I believe this is true, that when people really understand what goes on at the communion table, 
that God lives outside of time. This is going to be really deep, so you've got to follow me, okay? But God lives outside of time. And so when people are taking communion and they understand what they're doing and it's real, it's almost like you are there with Jesus when he took communion with his disciples. And it's almost like you're there at the foot of the cross as he paid for all of the benefits. And it's almost like you're there with the children of Israel as they sacrificed that lamb and put the blood on the doorpost and the the promises that were there. It's like as we take communion, we're connecting fully into that covenant, so to speak, and we're remembering that covenant and the benefits of that covenant. Now, Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it's written, curses anyone who's hung on a tree, in order that in Christ the blessings of Abraham might come on the Gentiles, so that we receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So when Jesus hung on that cross, the Bible says, cursed is anyone who's hung on a tree. He hung there for six hours, and he became a curse for us. And so Christ paid for your deliverance. For Satan to be defeated and that breakthrough to come. And when you take the Lord's Supper, remember it's a covenant meal. And so what I'm saying is, is that God is so faithful to his end of the covenant. When we're taking communion, we're saying, Lord, we remember the covenant Jesus cut at Calvary. The benefits that the power of sin is broken. The power of sickness is broken. The power of poverty is broken. The power that Satan uh, in the demonic realm is broken. And Lord, we remember that covenant that was cut. And as we eat of this covenant meal, we're just simply reminding you of that covenant and we're laying hold of that by faith right now. Verse Peter 2.24, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so we might die to sin and live for righteousness for by his wounds you have been healed. By his wounds you have been healed. And Peter was connecting to Isaiah 53 when he was quoting this. So Peter, who did not have a New Testament at this time, they were going back and quoting. They understood that the Torah, the first five books, they understood the prophets. They understood that all this was fulfilled in Christ. So Peter is really quoting from Isaiah 53 right here. He's just paraphrasing it. But Isaiah 53 starting with verse 2. For he grew up before him as a tender shoot. Like a root out of parched ground. He had no stately form of majesty that we would look upon him. Nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men. A man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Like one from whom men hide their face he was despised. And we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Remember that phrase for a moment. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed or bruised for our iniquities. The the chastening or the chastisement for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, that cat of nine tells the stripes we are healed. It's interesting because Matthew eight seventeen, Matthew was quoting from this. And Jesus was going around healing the sick. And Matthew said this. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. 
He took up our infirmities, that sickness, and bore our diseases. And he was quoting from this right here, where it says he, he carried our griefs, or he bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. So this is the covenant that was cut. How many believe, like I do, that God is faithful to his word to watch over it, to perform it? And last week I preached on the fact that we have to pray and believe. The Bible says pray, believe you have received it, even though you may not feel or see any different right now, you believe it to be done. And you stay in faith, you keep speaking the word, and you believe, and your life will line up with the promises of God. This is the covenant. And what happens is, is as preachers get up and preach this, you know, it's interesting, I was reading um, a book that has to do with God's generals about healing evangelists. And just going through that, and I was really amazed, but not, not really surprised, but just kind of in awe of seeing how down through the ages God has used people so powerfully in this realm. And there was a man by the name of F.F. F. Bosworth, and he had a great healing ministry. And some of you will remember some of these stories, but back in the days of John Alexander Dowie, who, who founded that city of Zion, he had a healing ministry. And F.F. F. Bosworth and John G. Lake were there, living in that city. Well, they heard about the great revival that broke out at Azusa. And they're like, we've got to go. And so they go down to Azusa Street. God powerfully touches them. Out of the Azusa Street revival, John G. Lake goes to Africa and has a great healing ministry, which many of you know about. But F.F. F. Bosworth, he began to really carry this revival and began to really carry the, the fire of God. And when... Azusa began to wane. F.F. Bosworth was the one that really kept preaching under that anointing. And he wrote a book that still to this day is called a classic called Christ Our Healer. And it's still read today by many. And it has to do with what I preached on tonight, that it is in the atonement. That Jesus paid for sickness just like he paid for sin, just like he paid for deliverance. It was in the atonement. And this was revolutionary in those days. But F.F. Bosworth got that in his spirit. John G. Lake did too. When he went to Africa, he had such a strong conviction that the Holy Spirit, the spirit of life, would break the power of sickness and death. He was so convinced of God's healing power. John G. Lake had a tremendous healing ministry in Africa. There was even a time recorded when the bubonic plague swept through Africa and people were dying. And John G. Lake wasn't getting sick. In fact, people that he was praying for was getting healed. And they couldn't understand it. And they were like, man, what's going on with you? And he said, the power of God is sustaining me. The spirit of life breaks the power of sickness and death. And he understood the healing power of God. And he allowed them to do this. They put some of the bluebonnet plague, bluebonnet plague on his hand. It, it was like a foam that came from somebody's mouth. They put it on his palm and put his palm under a microscope. And as they watched that thing under a microscope, it died. And they were amazed that, that there was something about this man, that there was anointing, there was a faith for healing. And also, after Wells, the great Welsh revival was raging, it was so powerful at the turn of the um, 20th century. And there was a man, the, the Jeffrey brothers, that a lot of people here don't know much about these guys. But they heard about the great revival in Wells and they had to go. And God really touched them there. 
See, I'm trying to show you that a lot of times revivals break out and people go desperate and hungry, but they carry on that revival, you know. And the Jeffrey brothers, as wells began to wane, they were so grieved and they were saying, God, this is such a mighty move. Don't let this revival end. Let it continue, Lord. And it did through the Jeffrey brothers. And George Jeffries had a great healing ministry and he wrote a book called Healing Rays where he dealt with the things I'm preaching on tonight. And George Jeffries had such a healing ministry that during his time, though, of ministry, the world wars broke out, World War I, and a lot of people were having to go to war, and it really hindered what God was, you know, what he was wanting to accomplish for the Lord because so many people were off to war. But later, many years later, there was a man by the name of Colin Dye there in England, and Colin felt really led to open up this place called Kensington Temple. And this was what George Jeffries, where he had church. And so Colin Dye goes there and they, they buy the place and they start opening it up and they got to go in and clean it all out. And he said he was blown away as they began to excavate out of the basements and out of the closets all of the different um, cots and, and uh, walkers and everything you can imagine that people came and they got healed and said i don't need this anymore and threw it down and left <laughs> they pulled out all kinds of stuff out of that church where god moved with great healing but we need that today and god god paid for it christ paid for it at calvary it is a cut covenant and we need to start pressing into it so i want